this morning, I want to read Acts 17, and I want to read it with this question in mind. What is it that we're looking for? Why are we in, why did God put it on our hearts to go through this, the book of Acts? And, um, and what I believe that we're doing is that we're looking for principles that we can pull into the present that will answer the question, what does it look like for us to be a community of transformation? Uh, if, if our minds are renewed and we are being transformed by Jesus and through our relationship with Jesus and by his spirit and by the study of his word, then how do we carry that transformation to the world around us? What better place to ask that question than this radical group of people who are doing that very thing. And so we understand that culturally it's different and the things that are going on are different, but I think we can pull things in that will help us be a people who are not only transformed, but are bringing transformation to the world around us. And so we want to carry that transformation as individuals, but we really want to think of this as a community. I know that our journey, your journey to faith in Jesus is very individual and, and I respect that. I honor that. And I believe that as well. But what I also believe is that the expression of that faith journey is in community. And so it's vital for us that as we're reading in Acts, we're looking at what it means to be communities of transformation, that we're asking ourselves, do I have a community of people around my life and with me who are, who are running or walking and carrying with me and spurring me forward into this place of being a transformative presence in the world and wherever we find ourselves. And so we want that meaningful community around our life. We hope that you're finding that here at Living Waters, but we hope that this is not the end point, that out of this being a way station in that journey into deeper community, that you see that there are pockets and groups of people that you can jump in with and run with who are asking this very question of what does it look like to bring transformation, the transformation of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and the transformation that comes from it into every area of our life. But Hebrews encourages us this to say, let us hold resolutely, let us hold fast to the hope that we profess. For he, Jesus, he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's what community is for us, and that's what it should be for you, is that there's groups of people who are saying, this is what it looks like to be uh, in love with Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, and to carry his love, and that we would stir one another up through prayer. We would stir people up, one another up through encouragements, and calling out giftedness in people, and seeing strengths, and seeing opportunities, and going, yes, go for it. I'm with you. When we have those kind of people in our life that champion us and get behind us, that's incredible for our community, but it's incredible also to see how God uses that and moves in that. So that's what we want to encourage you in as we look at Acts 17. And so, um, you know, sometimes when I preach, there's these amazing chapters that I know, oh, this is going to be one of those, this is amazing Sunday, incredible Sunday. Everyone's going to be weeping. There's going to be breakthrough. It's awesome. And, and um, Acts 17 is not really one of those. And so... <laughs> I was bored preparing the message, um, so I have very little hope for you this morning, uh, but we're going to do our best, and we're going to read Acts 17 together because we're studying the Word, we're studying Scripture together, so we're going to read through it, and it's, it, don't get me wrong, it's, it, there's really, really good stuff in here, and what I asked, the question I asked was, what does it mean, what does it look like, what can we learn from this chapter that we can apply to our lives and to our community of, of how do we carry that transformation, right? So that's the question that we're going to ask. So as I read this, I'm curious, and maybe you've been reading and you know we're in Acts, so you're reading ahead. I would be curious, honestly, what God is showing you uh, 
um, that you would pull out of this that maybe is a little bit different than what I pulled out of it. But I, uh, once I started writing down things, I ended up with too many. And so I asked the Lord, like, what is, what is really the targets? What's the emphasis this morning? And I came up with four things that I think we can learn about what it means to be a community of transformation from this chapter in Acts. And, and so as, you, as we read through it, maybe the, the Spirit of God would just highlight a few different ones for you as well, because there's a ton in here. But let's, let's take a few minutes and read through Acts 17 together. I'm reading out of the NIV uh, is, is normally what I'm reading out of when, I, when I'm sharing scripture with you guys when we're studying it. So, um, so in Acts 17, it picks up as Paul is on, his, on this missionary journey. And, uh, and the first thing that it says is this, and Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And so what's happening here is that Paul is traveling along what we call the Roman road. It's this 500 mile road that the, that the Romans built. And so it allowed for easy travel and it really allowed for the gospel to spread. And so he, Paul and his companions as they're doing missionary trips and as they're planting churches, it's all along this incredible road that was created by, by the the Romans and by the government and allowed the allowed them to carry the gospel out into what they would refer to as all the world, um, which for those of you that enjoy doing study, uh, Matthew 24, Jesus reference, references the end is coming when the, when the truth and the gospel has been spread to all the world. And so if you look in scripture, you'll find that there's places where Paul and his companions declare that the gospel has reached all the world. And so when we're looking at the timeline of that, it's interesting as a point of context for, um, sorry, that's... Kate must have hugged me this morning. I just realized I have a giant hair. Where'd she go? Oh, she's gone. Okay, hanging off my shirt. If there's anything I'm good at, it's getting distracted. Um, so as was Paul's custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, uh, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And, and when, you, when you define that word scriptures, you're not, it's not the whole of scriptures. It actually is referencing to some very particular scriptures that Paul referenced that were meaningful to this, to this group within this synagogue that he then used what was meaningful to them, specifically and meaningful to them, to be able to express to them and share with them the story of Jesus. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's cool to hear how Paul is teaching them and explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. One thing I highlighted and I circled is that is how Luke is consistently in Acts as he is he's doing historical recording of this of the early church and of the missionary journey is that how often he is making a point to reference how women and prominent women are joining this gospel team, are joining this missions team, are joining this early church. And I just find that interesting. I think it was important to Luke to, to really note that, and, and it becomes important as we look at the New Testament as a whole. So from there it says this, but other Jews were jealous. So Paul would go into the synagogues, he would go to the Jewish brothers and sisters and he would proclaim the gospel. He would take certain sections of scripture and he would say, this is Jesus, he's the Messiah. He rose from the dead. This is what, we are. This is what you've been looking for. And so some of them believed and some of them uh, didn't believe. And, and so the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Jason was someone who had supported them, and they were staying at his house, obviously. Um, but And also, I just love that Jason is the name that's in there. I'm so, I'm so used to all these other names, and then there's Jason. Um, 
So, time travel. Um, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's creed, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. I, I circled this. This is not one of my main points, but I think it's important to note and reference is that we are always, as followers of Jesus, we are always gonna come up against the kingship of whatever culture we find ourselves in, and it doesn't matter where we would land as believers, is that in, in anywhere in the world that when we declare that Jesus is king over our life, that takes whatever whatever power play there's supposed to be within a certain culture of how we're supposed to bend a knee to this, this leader, this culture, this thing. It takes all of that off the plate as followers of Jesus. And we say, that's all well and good, but my king is Jesus. And you'll probably learn, I mean, you have learned this, you've seen this. It's like, who is king in our culture? Well, power is king in our culture. And so when you're asked to kneel down to power, you'll say, no, my king is Jesus. And But I would ask that question further when we're talking about kingship, is that Jesus is the king of your heart and Jesus is the king of your life. Who's the king of your workplace? Like what is king in your workplace? Is it performance? Is it money? Is it earning? Is it notoriety? When you're asked to, to bend a knee to those things and to make decisions that put those things in prominence over Jesus, you're going to run contrary to the culture, whether that's the culture that you're in or the culture of your workplace that says, no, you know what? Money is not my king. Jesus is my king. No, I'm not gonna make that decision because Jesus is the king of my life and my heart. And you're gonna find those are points of conflict. What is the king of, the, of your family? What has been the story of the cycles within your family that would say, you know what's unfortunate, but what's king in my family is this certain thing or this certain thing. And when you say, no, I have a new king in my life. Jesus is seated on the throne of my heart. You're gonna run contrary to some of the cycles in your workplace, in your culture, in your family, whatever it may be. And so this is what they were accused of, declaring that there was another king besides Caesar, this one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Oh no, when they, then they made Jesus, uh, Jason, not Jesus, then they made Jason and the other, others post bond and let them go. So now you have them freed and they're moving into another region. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul, I'm on verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, you'll see this pattern where, where every time Paul arrives somewhere, he's going to the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because he believes that they would be the most receptive to the gospel and he knows how to approach them and share the gospel with them. Using Old Testament scripture, he pulls out the scriptures and he shares with them. And so he's going to a place where he believes the good news will be received. So he went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. So commendable of them to do this. And, and what, an, what a cool report that they were noted as people who would listen, but also search scripture and say, is this true? And so they have become somewhat famous for the way that they studied the word. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers, verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him 
to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So the cycle that you're seeing on these missionary journeys, Paul shows up somewhere. He goes into the synagogue. He proclaims the gospel. Some Jews believe. Some God-fearing Greeks, which would be people who were a part of that Jewish synagogue. They're there. They believe. Then there's opposition that is stirred up. And then Paul removes himself from that opposition, finds himself in a new place, and does the same thing again until opposition arises. And then he moves to a new place and he does the same thing again. Always finding hearts that are open to the gospel everywhere that he goes. And so he's just proclaiming this truth. And so he, he, he went to Athens. He had this instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. So now we see a transition. Paul has moved into the marketplace day by day and with those who happened to be there. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, so Greek philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? You may be thinking the same thing right now. Um, <laughs> Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus where they said to him, and that is, that's Mars Hill. That's where we get that name Mars Hill that you sometimes thrown, hear thrown around. It's this place where they would gather and share thoughts and philosophies and talk and, and, and pass judgments on whether someone's out in left field or if they're bringing something that's useful. And so they had this place where they would all, where they would all share um, so they, uh, he, you are bringing some, may we know, okay, so they, he said, they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It's like TED Talks. <laughs> I didn't even know they had podcasts back then. Um, so, so then Paul, he then stood up in the meeting at Mars Hill and he said, people of Athens, I see in every way that you are very spiritual or that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm gonna share with you who this unknown God is. So if you'll pause right there for a second and go back up to verse 16. Paul is using something, catch this, Paul is using something that greatly distressed him to share the gospel with people. It's very, very interesting that he's walking around looking at culture going, that's distressing, that's distressing, that's distressing. And then they said, come up into this point of prominence and speak to us. Does he take this as an opportunity to say, you all are so distressing and disgusting and I can't believe that you have this? No, he takes this as an opportunity to say privately, this thing is distressing to me, but it's valuable to them and I see this as a vehicle or an open door in a way that I can present Jesus. 
It's crazy to think about that and to think about the things that may be distressing to you and me and that we look at those as maybe things to guard against or things to rebuke or things to throw judgment upon. But what if we had a reversal of our mind and our spiritual being to be able to see in a way that would say, if this is something that is important and valuable to culture, even if it is distressing to me as I'm walking around praying and and listening to the Lord, it's distressing to me when I have an opportunity to speak to people. I'm not going to speak about what has distressed me. I'm going to speak to what's going on in their heart that's causing them to have this value or this peace. And that's a vehicle that Paul used to be able to proclaim the gospel. So I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So amongst all these idols, and he is going to address He's going to address their passion for idols, but he's getting to it. He doesn't lead with judgment. He leads with this truth about Jesus. So the God who made the world, I'm I'm going to tell you about this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one may... For one man, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundary of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him for him and to find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This is a pretty profound way that Paul just summed up all of human history and why God handled humans in a certain way for generation after generation after generation. Uh, He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. He is declaring this to people who have not responded to an altar call. They have not invited Jesus to come and live inside their little hearts. They had not done any of these things. He is declaring a universal truth, not universalism. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Everyone's like, whoa. But he is declaring to them that is so, this is challenging for us to be able to say to a culture that is worshiping idols and doing things that are distressing that his call to them is that God is already in you and that he has seen you as sons and daughters and he's calling them into family. It's nuts to us because that's not how we have experienced this. But this is what Paul did. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his sons and daughters. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, he goes on to say. So his inclusion, inclusion here is therefore since we are, we are his offspring, we together collectively, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now he's dealing with idols. In the past, God overlooked. And if you look at this, it means he winked at this. Not that he took it totally lightly, but God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them 
Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a, num and a number of others. Okay, so such a cool story, and it's incredible to, to get a little bit of a glimpse into how Paul witnessed to people of Jesus and told the story of Jesus. And so when he was with Jewish people of Jewish backgrounds and culture, he would lean into Scripture. When he wasn't with them, he didn't even reference Scripture. He didn't even mention the name Jesus. So it's incredible to see we have, this, we have this brilliant glimpse into how Paul ministered and shared the gospel of the good news of Jesus with people around him. And so I want to pull out of that. What does that mean for us? And what can we learn about being a community of transformation? Here's the, the four things that, that, uh, that God put on my heart to pull out of this for us today. The first thing is this, a community of transformation doesn't fight unnecessary battles. We see this in verse 10. We see this in verse 15. While Paul is moving from place to place to place, when he encounters opposition, he goes, okay, now I'm going to move somewhere else. And wherever God places me, there's going to be fruitfulness there. And so they're not fighting unnecessary battles. Paul and his group of people, they looked for places and people of peace. They were willing to move on instead of always having to dig in. They were spreading the gospel by looking for receptive hearts, not by demanding an audience or to be heard. The gospel is not a weapon in a culture war. It is a tiny seed. It is an agent of transformation that is looking for receptive hearts. And too often, I believe that we have created the gospel and our belief and our, and our, and our, and our faith in the word and our faith in God and our faith in Jesus and our belief in the spirit of God moving. I believe that sometimes we have weaponized this to fight against culture rather than taking it to seed in our life and allowing it to fall out of our life into fertile grounds wherever we happen to find ourselves. And when there's opposition, we don't always have to fight every single fight. I'm not saying there's no fighting, but they did not fight unnecessary battles because they knew that the gospel would be fruitful wherever they went. Matthew 13, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man planted in, it, in his field. And though it was the smallest of all seeds, when it grew, it is the largest garden plant. And it becomes a tree so that birds may come and perch in its branches. And Jesus also said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. I don't know why the very specific measurement, but I'm sure there's something divine in there. Uh, 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all the way through the dough. Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seeds on the ground. Night and day he sleeps and wakes, and the seed sprouts and grows, though he knows not how. All by itself the earth produces a crop, first the stock, then the head, then the grain that ripens within. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he swings the sickle because the harvest has come. And I believe that we are too often, the thing that I want to take away from this is being, what does it look like for us to be a community of transformation? I think we need to check our hearts and make sure that we aren't fighting unnecessary battles, that we are not walking around so tightly strong and looking for offense and looking at frustration that we're in that constant place of fight or flight, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And I believe that it would be easy for us to too often be trying to fight battles for God that he isn't asking us to fight, and whether that's personal or cultural or within our family, we don't need to be fighting, we need to be farming. 
We, we, we need to not think as much like, like an army that's trying to win a culture war as much as we're trying to think of ourselves and learn what it means to be ambassadors who are learning to conquer evil by doing good, okay? And I know we talked about this last week, so I don't want to dive too deeply into this, but I just want to make sure that like Paul, wherever we find ourselves, we see a mission field instead of a battlefield in front of us. And we see a field that is ready for us to spread seeds. And that when we're done, we're going to look back. And some of those places, the seeds are not going to have been fruitful. And some of those places, the seeds are going to have been carried off. Some of those places, the seeds are going to have fallen on dry ground. But some of those places are going to have been fruitful. And we're going to be able to pick up not a sword to go attack our culture, but a sickle to go and receive the harvest that Jesus has for us. When we live in this place of going, we're pursuing peace, not looking for war and battles all the time. Pursue peace and be people who do that. They didn't fight unnecessary battles. Allow us when we pursue peace. I think it challenges us to be people who are patiently waiting on the Holy Spirit to work, not not giving ourselves permission to just back and sit down and go, oh, well, whatever will happen will happen. No, but I do believe that if we're learning a reliance on the Holy Spirit, it comes with pursuing peace, but it also comes with patience that he is at work. And we're gonna watch the seeds that are falling from your life and from my life and from this community and from this place fall onto ground that I believe is soft and will receive it. And that's when we have to be ready to recognize it and go into that place and receive the harvest of people's hearts and lives that are coming into sonship and daughtership with God. So another thing that I think we see in this passage of scripture is this a community of transformation is a student to wherever they are placed whether that's a neighborhood a nation a school a workplace or a family too often when we are placed somewhere we are a student of how that place is going to affect us like what does this mean for me and how is this going to negatively affect me and I've got to deal with this and I have to deal with this and I have to deal with this we're very good at recognizing and looking around our life and going this is going to affect me negatively I don't like the looks of this I don't like how this is coming together. I don't like how this is going to turn out. Maybe it's just me, but I believe that we are very skilled at that. And we have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years because it's about how we survive. But we are not just to walk into places and go, how is this going to negatively affect me and put us on the defensive? We want to walk into these places with open eyes and hearts that would have us ask this question, these two questions. God, what are you doing here and now in the midst of my school, my workplace, my family. What are you doing right now? Too often in our prayer life, this is not, a, I'm not attacking anybody, I'm not doing any of that. But I think too often in our prayer life, we're, we're going, I'm gonna go to my prayer closet so I can tell God what to do. And I'm, oh man, I gotta pray about this. I gotta go to my prayer closet and tell him what to do with my kids and what to do with my culture. And I want, we're trying to instruct God instead of allowing prayer to be a place of instruction. Prayer is not about changing anything except yourself and coming into alignment and more Christ-likeness so that when you walk out of your prayer closet or your prayer time, that you now have these questions that you can look with new eyes and you can say, God, what is it that you are doing here and now in my family, in my kids, in my workplace, in my school? And the second thing is this, how do I join you in that? So if our prayers became, God, show me, open my eyes to what you're doing, and then instruct me on how to join you, I promise, and maybe we should make this our prayer at the end of the service, raise your right hand and say, God, I promise that I'm not going to tell you what to do, and when I see you at work, I'm going to join you, even if I don't like where you're working, how you're working, or who you're working on. 
Because when we pray to God and we tell him, this is what I want and this is what I expect, we create a target for him. And if he's not hitting the target, we throw our little fit. But if we learn to have open eyes to say, I don't care who you're working on. I don't care what it looks like. But if you show me, I'm there. That's what Paul was doing that was so powerful and that we, he, he showed us in these moments. God is always up to something. Our task, if we have a task, is to watch and honor his lead, to listen, to pray, and to join him. The third thing that we see from this passage of scripture is that a community of transformation creatively uses things within culture to open ears and hearts. And I mentioned this as we were reading through the passage when Paul references the idol to the unknown God. He's preaching and teaching people who are the philosophers of Athens. We see how Paul preaches to people who don't have an Old Testament background. They don't have a scriptural background. They don't know about Abraham. They don't know about Moses. They don't know about David. They don't know about any of that stuff. And so this becomes probably one of the most helpful passages in Acts to instruct us on how we are to reach a culture who we can't just go to them and be like, you know, you're really not following the, the, the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to his people. And they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? And, and you're like, well, then the Moses, Moses came and they're like, who's Moses? And he gave us the Ten Commandments and you're not following the Ten Commandments. And I, I find it humorous but one of the ways that we were taught to share the gospel with people was to get them to agree to the Ten Commandments and then to get them to say that they failed to live up to the Ten Commandments so that we could convince them that they were under the wrath of a God that they didn't even know so that then we could convince them to say a sinner's prayer so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be saved and have eternal life. When Jesus said, believe in me and you have eternal life, and I don't understand why we've been taught that we have to go into a culture that has no biblical frame of reference for the most part and go, hey, you need to follow the Old Testament laws and you need to come under them and you need to know that you're failing them so that you know that you need a savior so that you can get saved. Isn't this what Paul fought against over and over and over again in, in Acts when people would come from Jerusalem and go, you guys have to follow the old covenant. You need to be circumcised. You need to come into the temple and into the synagogue and come Commit your life to God so that you can receive a Jewish Messiah. And Paul fought against that and fought against that and fought against that. So this passage of scripture becomes so important, I believe, for how do we reach a culture that doesn't have the frame of reference where we can go chapter and verse on them and convince them to follow Jesus? If somebody has that background, by all means, that is a great tool and technique. We see Paul doing that over and over and over again. But as soon as you take him out of that context, he's not referencing at all. He's not even saying the name of Jesus. Jesus at first. He's inviting them to something. And so we see that he meets them right where they're at. He uses a God that they understand. He uses an idol that they have as a point of reference. And he says, I want to tell you about this unknown God. Number two, he doesn't mention the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not advocating for us not mentioning the name of Jesus within culture. Again, for the second time in this message, I probably say it at least once every time I preach, don't hear what I'm not saying, please. Um, listen to what I'm saying. Don't imprint or import into what I'm saying. But sometimes we need to tell people about Jesus better without having to just say, Jesus, right? What if, how do you tell people about Jesus and demonstrate Jesus without saying Jesus in a way where later they come to you, just like happened with Paul, where later they're like, 
dude, tell me more about what you are talking about. This Messiah, this resurrection, tell me about this. And he got to share Jesus with them. Those were the receptive hearts that came and he shared Jesus with them and they got to become a part of this radical Jesus-filled community. And instead of quoting from scripture, the third thing that we see Paul do is that instead of quoting from scripture, he, he quotes from one of their pagan poets. So it's a challenge to us to say, how are we using the arts or the music or the crafts or the movies or whatever it may be to a people who are hungry for spiritual meaning and spiritual depth and hungry for a relationship with their God, their Father, but they're expressing it in a way from a place where they, they don't know what it is that they're hungry for and they don't know what it is that they're starving for. It doesn't know, they don't know what it is that they're thirsty for, but you do. And when you hear their cries, when you hear their songs, when you hear their poems, when you see their art, you see the things that they write in movies, this shouldn't be something where, I'll, oh, I'm just gonna open myself up to whatever and take it all in. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But can we also hear with ears where the Spirit of God would say, that's a son crying for a father. But no, we don't hear that, right? Because we hear bad. I'm not saying you have to ingest it all, but when you listen, you hear sons and daughters crying for home. You hear people expressing a longing to belong and to believe in something that's bigger and greater than themselves. And so Paul doesn't go to scripture. He goes to one of their poets to emphasize what, he is speak, what he's speaking about to them. And then the last thing is this, a community of transformation. Creatively uses things within culture to open ears and hearts. A community of transformation called them to a God that could be known. And he says this to them, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. So before we take this into our lives, before we take this desire to reach culture and go, I want, I want people to know this God, I think this comes with not a rebuke at all, but an invitation that we would be people who would never fall under this saying, the saying, we are ignorant of the God that we worship. It's easy for it to become cultural. It's easy for it to become the expectation. My family believes this. My, my nation believes this. This is who we are. But individually and collectively as living waters, I long, and I know Kate and I's passion in our heart of this team and everybody who is here, is that we have this invitation to know God personally and that that would be what we carry out into culture. That's what we carry when we're talking about being people of transformation, not a head knowledge, not a check the boxes and respond. It's a thing that says, I am in personal relationship with God and I know that he wants to have that same relationship with you. He's inviting them to know a God that they feel like is far off or that they're ignorant of. From that moment in Acts 2 when we've been studying this where the Spirit is pouring out, the whole message, the whole goal of God has been to be personal and in personal relationship with you and me that he would be known. And we know this to be a, him to be a God that's near the brokenhearted. We know him to be a God that draws near to those who seek him. We know him to be a God that Jesus proclaimed. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's why it's our passion that we would know God. And we wouldn't be, and I won't re-preach this message, but as Jesus sat with Peter and said, Peter, who do people say that I am? Peter said, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're like Moses. Some say that you're this, and some say that you're that. 
And Jesus interrupted him. He said, I don't care what everybody else says. I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter has that moment where he says, you are Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, it is by revelation that you have received this message. This is the message that I will build my church on, right? So the message that Jesus is building his church on is the personal revelation of who Jesus is. We do not want to be people who we say, my church told me that God is like this. My family told me that God is like this. My culture told me that God is like this. We wanna know who is Jesus, to me and to you, and that is the message that we carry out when Jesus says to you and to me, who do you say that I am? That's what we get to carry to a culture, to a world, to a place that is, that's the message, the message of Jesus that is transformative. And as I wrap up our time, I wanna say this. I just want us to remember this as we're talking about being communities of transformation is that we don't exist as a church to convince people to love God. We exist as a church to convince people how deeply loved by God that they are. Your commission into culture is not to convince people to love God. Let your commission into culture, into your family, into your relationships, into your schools, let it just be to show people and convince them of how loved and pursued and known and close to God that they already are. In him we live and move and have our being. And aren't we his offspring? Aren't we all his sons and daughters? And as Paul said, aren't we already so close to him? But you don't know him. And I wanna, I wanna show you and teach you who he is. It's Jesus and he loves you. And I think that churches have gone off the rails. I think that leaders have gone off the rails when we're trying to twist arms and twist hearts and twist lives and convince people, you gotta love God more. You gotta serve God more. You gotta do more for God. What if instead we flipped that and we just said, I want you to know how deeply loved by God you are. I want you to know what it means to be a son and a daughter. And I want you to carry this, this gospel of seeds everywhere that you go, not looking for a fight, but looking for places of peace and places to spread your seeds, throw them out, watch what the Holy Spirit does and be ready to harvest that fruit that God brings. Amen? Amen. Amen. Awesome. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna stop there. And, um, and here's what I wanna do. I want to take a few minutes and I know it's a bit of a left turn, but it's just been on my heart. This is a rad opportunity on an important weekend for our nation for us to simply pray and reflect. One, to be thankful, but two, to be moved by God, saying, how is it that we carry your hope and the revelation of Jesus into our culture? But also, God, would you just continue to show up, do deep work in our, in our, in our nation, in the hearts of our leaders? I believe that an encounter with Jesus can change every single heart, and that's what, my, that's what I'm praying for. And so what I want to do is just, turn, we're gonna turn on a little bit of music. Uh, where The communion is open. If you would like to take communion, we are instructed in Scripture to do this in remembrance of Jesus. And so as we're taking communion, we are reminding ourselves that we're grabbing onto the 
supernatural transactional power of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His blood poured out, his body broken for us, but also so that we have a message to proclaim to the world around us. And so if you would join me in taking some time to pray over this nation, take communion over this nation. And whenever you're finished, whenever you're done, you are welcome to go. You're welcome to go now. If you are gonna hang out, we love community. We love talking. If you're gonna do that, would you mind just taking that into the lobby um, for us so that we have a few minutes in here to just pray. And then um, we love you guys. We bless you. We honor you. You are amazing. You guys are so deeply loved by us, but also so deeply loved by the Father. And I, and I, uh, I just appreciate the work that God is doing in you and through you. So let's, let's take a few minutes now and, 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 and just be a people of prayer.